Isaac Newton in his third law that said, for every action, there is an equal or greater reaction. And we become accustomed to that, even though perhaps we can't define it, even from a young age. A teeter-totter, two children on a playground. If one goes up, the other goes down. The transfer of energy from one side to another. A little bit later in life, perhaps you fire a shotgun or a Glock and you feel the recoil as the powder explodes and the projectile forced out of one end causes the reaction to kick back on the other. Whiplash in a car, if you crash into something, you feel the energy bounce back. Every action has an equal or a greater reaction. We would test this growing up in a most interesting way. We would do something prank-like. We called it the test of strength, and it would look like this. As one uh, friend would challenge another friend to a test of strength, he'd say, do you want to see how strong you are? Two men about equal size, he'd say, here's how it goes. They'd sit across from each other, and the one would put his elbow on the table with his fist facing him like this, and the other would sit across and hold the fist with fingers crossed, fingernails tucked in the fingers between the digits, and would pull that fist from across the table. And then he would challenge his friend and say, if you're truly strong, you'll be able to break the pull of my fingers here as I hold it. Only the truly strong can break that, that strength of a man's grip. And so the friend would you know, ego up to the challenge and he would put his fist down and he would pull as hard as he can and then the friend would smirk and let go and he would punch himself in the face. <laughs> the, the, battle, the battle isn't to the strong and the race isn't to the swift and all of that. But usually when we think of actions and reactions or Sir Isaac's law, we think of it in the context of a warning and that is to beware of the reaction. And almost everything that we do, even invisible things and intangible things, have some form of a reaction. Things that we say can elicit a reaction, a statement that we make, a conversation. We might ask our boss for a raise, and we think that there's not going to be a reaction, but there always is in some way some kind of reaction. When we pray, there's a reaction. Sometimes we pray and we ask God for patience. Have you ever done that? Well, you know that there's a reaction that comes when you act on that desire. If you ask God to save someone, a spouse or perhaps a, a, a daughter or a son, and you ask God to work in their life and to open their heart and save them, you see that there's something that happens. Sometimes there's a stirring, an uprising, and things can become even more chaotic. You could ask for a change in your life, and you've noticed that you're praying for change. God, do something in my life, and the next day you lose your job. You say, that's not what I asked for. But the point is that actions bring reactions even in invisible ways. Now, in our spiritual lives, there's one area that carries with it a dangerous reaction that is seldom considered, and that is this, is what takes place after you accomplish your goals. And just like the test of strength, there can be so much effort applied in something. You know, when you're trying to meet a goal, maybe a life goal, you want to get to a certain place. You want to build a family. You want to build a pension or an IRA. You want to have a successful career. And you have your list, we all do, of things that we'd like to accomplish, sometimes secret things stored away, tucked away in the back of our mind. And there's so much energy and effort that's put into accomplishing those goals. And sometimes, once we accomplish those goals, 
We no longer have the resistance or the need for that kind of effort, but we still have the energy that it takes to produce it. And what can happen is that we can end up punching ourselves in the face. And that's kind of exactly what happens to Solomon as we come to him in our study tonight. It's where we find him uh, in this thing. He's accomplished his goals, but he still has a lot of energy. And there's a reaction that comes with it. It's where we pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, It came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire that he was pleased to do. Now Solomon at this point is only 20 years into a 40-year reign. He will reign for 40. He is at 20 and he is done with everything that has been cut out, the work that's been carved out for him to do. You could say in a sense that his bucket list is complete. All of his desire, everything that he wants, his goals have been met at this time in his life. And so notice what happens in verse 2 into that context with that backdrop it says it says that the lord appeared to solomon the second time as he had appeared unto him at gibeon now you recall back earlier in solomon's life after he had just begun to reign he had offered a thousand burnt offerings to the lord and god came to him and he said ask whatever you want and i'm going to give it to you that's when solomon asked for wisdom and god granted his request and also said i will give you also the things that you didn't ask for riches influence peace all the days of your life. You know, God gave, met him there that time. And it says that he met him uh, in a dream. Solomon awoke, it was a dream. And so now it says that God met him again. He comes to him the second time as he had the first time. And he said, verse three, the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that you have made before me. I have hallowed this house, which you have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. God meets with Solomon and he gives him this affirmation concerning the prayer that he made. Now, the first thing I want to bring to your attention is this, is that God responds to our works of service. When did God meet with Solomon the first time? It was after he had offered a thousand burnt offerings. At that point in Solomon's life, that was a sacrifice. At this point, a thousand burnt offerings is nothing. We saw in the last chapter, he offered 22,000 rams or bulls. You know, now he's much more wealthy, but at that time it was a sacrifice. It was a love offering in a sense, a burnt offering, but done out of the love that was in his heart. And God responded to that by meeting with him. Here now, Solomon has spent the last 20 years developing the temple area compound. And he did it for the name of the Lord. And then he dedicates it. And he sees the ark brought in and the glory of God fall. And God's presence is established in the place where God said it would be. It was an incredible work that Solomon did. It was really the legacy, the purpose for his kingship to do that. And now he did it. And so God comes to him again after his work of service. It's important for us to understand that. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Sometimes we think that the things that we do for the Lord or in his name are for nothing, that we're just volunteering or we're being philanthropic in the way that we're uh, dealing in our lives. And, and it really bears no influence on anything. God doesn't see it. Maybe it's recorded in a book somewhere and we'll get a pat on the back when we get to heaven, but not so. There is an eternal reward, but there's also a temporal dividend. 
God honors and blesses the things that we do. We see that here with Solomon. He comes to him while he's still on earth and says, well, he's going to give him his word. He affirms it. But for you and I to understand that when we step out and when we serve in any capacity at all, there is a blessing in it. Second thing I would uh, draw to your attention here is, is that this is only the second appearance, as it's stated there in the scripture, in a 20-year time span. And I think that's noteworthy. I think sometimes we think that, you know, a servant of God, someone in the scripture like Solomon or a David or a Paul, that they live with this constant direct phone line to God. That God is just always giving them these supernatural revelations and visions that everywhere they go, there's healings and miracles and signs and wonders taking place. Understand that that's not the way it works. We read in the book of Acts and we see that there's some, you know, I don't know, 30-something miracles, noteworthy miracles that happen. But sometimes we fail to realize they happened over a 30-year period of time. It wasn't like every day there was just a supernatural thing happening. And that's important to understand, and here's why. Because God wants his people to walk by faith and not by sight. He gives to us the direction that we're to go, and then he has us go in it. And every day isn't like we experience his presence, we experience his peace, but every day isn't like this, you know, blast of miraculous that happens in our lives. I was sharing with one of my kids earlier in the week, and I was telling them about something that happened early in my Christian life. Uh, I was in college. I was brand new saved. I mean, just a couple of weeks old in the Lord and just getting to know God and his word was exciting. And one morning, um, you know, I was laying in my bed. It was early. I don't even know what time. It was like the crack of dawn. And there was a crow right outside my window, my dorm window. And he was going at it. You know how it is, right? And he's going and going. And I can't sleep. And I just kind of in that state, halfway between sleep and awake, I don't even know if I said it out loud, whispered it, or just thought it. I said, God, could you please? (laughs) And I don't know if I said kill that bird. I probably didn't. I probably said just shut the bird up or something. But immediately, the bird stopped. Immediately. And it was like, at that point, my eyes just perked wide open. You know, it was like, wait, did that just happen? You know, is that how this whole prayer thing works? (laughs) I like it, you know. Now, every time I pray, it doesn't happen like that. That I pray and God just answers. And I knew that God answered my prayer that time. But what that taught me was not that every time I pray, God is going to answer my prayer the second I pray it. But what he taught me is that he hears every prayer that I pray, even the ones that I don't necessarily verbalize or formulate or get on my knees to pray. He's right there in all of it, and he's working. And he expects us to walk in the faith of that even though we don't experience the immediate outcome of it. And that's just an important thing for us to understand. And thirdly, what I point out here uh, is that when God does do something supernatural, it's because we need it. And that's the case with Solomon here. God appears the second time, and notice what he says, verse 4. He says that if you will walk before me as David your father walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded thee, And will keep my statutes and my judgments. Then I will establish the throne of your kingdom upon Israel forever. As I promised to David your father saying there shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if you shall at all turn from following me you or your children. And will not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you. But go and serve other gods and worship them. 
Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall become a proverb and a byword or a curse word among all people. And at this house which is high, everyone that passes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss. And they shall say, why has the Lord done thus unto this land and to this house? And they shall answer, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have taken hold upon other gods, and have worshipped them and served them. Therefore has the Lord brought upon them all of this evil. First of all, I want to point out to you here that there is a conditional promise of God that is made to Solomon. It's a promise but it's a conditional promise. He says, if you continue to walk in my ways as David did with uprightness and integrity of heart and you give heed to what I say, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom upon you and upon your descendants forever. But, condition, if you at all turn from following me, then not only will you and your descendants lose the place, but also this house that I've hallowed for my name will be cast away and Israel will become a proverb and a curse word amongst the people and they will know exactly why that has come to place. There are promises of God that are absolute in the Bible, but there are also promises of God in the Bible that are conditional. We all like Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. We all know it by heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Now, I love that promise. I cling to that promise. But do you know that's a conditional promise? He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And in everything you do, acknowledge him. In other words, ask God for wisdom and, and leading in everything you do. And if you do that, then he will direct your paths. It's a conditional promise. Just a few verses later, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 8, um, verses um, Nine and ten, it says, honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Now, we love God's promise of provision that he's going to meet our needs according to his riches and glory. But he says that attached to that is our responsibility to also honor God with our first fruits and to bring to him the things that he's prescribed. And so there's a, there's a condition on the promise. He promises to do it, but we have a part to play. John chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it will be done for you. A promise to hear our prayers and to move according to the things that we ask, the desires of our heart. But he says it's conditional upon the premise that our words are, his words are abiding in us and we are abiding in him is that we're in right relationship and that we're allowing God's word to dictate the thoughts of our heart. And so there's a conditional promise that's given to Solomon here, and we're going to see that Solomon doesn't keep his side, and God's also not going to keep his side. The other thing worth mentioning here is this, is that God holds leaders responsible for the well-being and the destiny of those that they lead. Now, I believe that that does apply to our nation loosely. We are a Christian nation, and we were founded upon biblical principles. However, we are not the same type of Christian nation, quote-unquote, that Israel was. Their whole foundation was they are governed by God. You know, their constitution was the law of Moses. (coughs) That's all there was. There was nothing else, you know. So God does do that 
in us, but more so where this does apply absolutely is for us in our homes. Is that as we lead those that God has placed under our care, moms and dads, he holds us responsible for the decisions and the actions that we make. And the consequences don't just affect us when we turn aside, but it also affects those in our family. I've seen this happen so often on both the positive and the negative side. I've seen parents that seek the Lord, that desire to walk with God. They walk in truth, and I see a a blessing, a protection, a hand of God upon uh, their household and upon their family. And then sometimes I see parents that go haywire. They turn their back on God. They kind of play church on one hand, but on the backhand, they're not walking with God at all. And you see the effects not just in their lives, but you see it come upon their families too. It's almost as though there's an invisible hedge that's broken down. And God says to Solomon, that will be the effect upon the nation. If you turn, and if your descendants turn, then it will affect not just you, but it will affect the whole nation. No one sins to themselves. Your sin always will affect those that are also attached to your life. It's a rule, it's a law, it goes without saying. Lastly, on this portion of scripture, I'll comment and say this, is that when God issues a warning in your life, take heed to that warning. Solomon is at the apex of his career. He's accomplished all that he's got to do, but where he finds himself right now is right in the middle of that test of strength. He's been forcing, pushing, moving, energized. He's been effective for 20 years. And all of a sudden, the responsibility is gone, but the strength is still there. And God sees a vulnerability in Samuel's or Solomon's life. That here you have all this resource, all this wisdom, and now all this time. Be careful. If God gives a warning into your life, even if you think, hey, I don't need the warning. God, I just saw your glory descend upon your temple. <coughs> I just experienced your move in such a way that, that, that how could I ever in any way turn my back on you after all that you just did? God, it'll never happen. God says, oh yeah? Watch out. I think that applies very um, closely to those of you who are nearing or have just passed retirement age. You've been pressing for so long, pushing, striving, going for it, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a place where you're sitting kind of comfortable You no longer have the responsibility and the strain of raising a young family and burning the candle on both ends. Now you have free time. And free time plus resources can sometimes be a toxic, toxic thing. And we're going to see that that's exactly what happens uh, to Solomon. This is an important time for Solomon to seek God for new vision, new unction. God, give me some impetus. What do you want me to do with this, my life, now that I'm free of all the things that I have done thus far? Solomon doesn't do it. We're going to see that he self-destructs. Well, he's still at the apex. We move on. We see in verse 10, uh, we kind of catch a, a, a snapshot of what things were like in that day. It says, it came to pass at the end of 20 years. When Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, <coughs> it says, now Hiram... The king of Tyre, we saw him in our study last week and the week before, had furnished Solomon with cedar trees and fir trees and with gold according to all his desire. So it came to pass, once all this was done, that then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Now we saw that the initial agreement between the two men was that Hiram would provide cedar and pine 
and Solomon would provide grain and oil. He would pay the salary of floating Hiram's government. But Solomon's building project went way beyond just the temple, and it spilled over into his house, the palace, the throne room, his wife's house, all the rest beyond what they'd agreed to. And so now Solomon extends the deal, and he agrees to give Hiram 20 cities in the region of Galilee in exchange for 120,000 or 120 uh, talents of gold. And so um, he gives Hiram the cities, verse 13, it says, and he said, Hiram said, what cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 12. It said, Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they pleased him not. And he said, what cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul, or good for nothing. He called them uh, uh, unto this day. Now, that region, the Galilee region, is one of the most beautiful regions in all the land of Israel. When you go on a tour to Israel, they break it in half. You spend half of it up in the Galilee where Jesus started his ministry. And then you spend the second half in Jerusalem where Jesus kind of finished his ministry. And you see all the history there. Galilee to the north, Jerusalem to the south. Now, I personally much more enjoyed the Galilee portion of the trip. I mean, it's farms, it's lush land, you see the lake, there's highs and lows, there's hillsides. I mean, it's just gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous terrain. And Solomon here, no doubt, thinks, I'm giving this guy primo real estate. The problem was that Hiram was from Tyre. And Tyre and Sidon, they were coastal cities, they were seafaring people. They made their living with Uh, exporting and importing. They would take advantage of their port upon the Mediterranean, and that's what they were into. They had no use for this type of land. They weren't this type of people. And so Solomon, seeking to bless, instead it turns out to be a curse, and Hiram isn't happy. Nevertheless, it says, verse 14, that Hiram sent to the king six talents or, or 120 talents of gold. And this is the reason of the levy which King Solomon raised. And so now we get in uh, to Solomon's workforce. It says, for to build the house of the Lord and his own house and Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor, that's a city in the north by Galilee, and Megiddo, that's a city in the middle of the land, and Gezer, which is a city just to the west of Jerusalem. It was a major uh, trade route between that linked Egypt, uh, Israel, and the rest of the Middle East. And so verse 16, for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burnt it with fire and slain the Canaanites that dwelt in the city and given it for a present unto his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon built Gezer and Beth-Horan the nether and Baalath and Tadmor in the wilderness in the land. And all the cities of store that Solomon had and cities for his chariots and cities for his horsemen and that which Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and in Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. And all the people that were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which were not of the children of Israel, their children that were left after them in the land whom the children of Israel were not able to utterly destroy, upon those did Solomon levy a tribute or tax them with bond service unto this day. So all of the remaining Canaanites that were not driven out, that still existed in Solomon's day, they became Solomon's labor force, the ones that built uh, these cities and these ports and these storehouses that Solomon had. Uh, Verse 22, But of the children of Israel did Solomon make no bondmen, 
But they were men of war, and his servants, and his princes, and his captains, and rulers of his chariots, and his horsemen. These were the chief of the officers that were over Solomon's work, 550. So he had 550 chief officers, which bear rule over the people that wrought in the work. But Pharaoh's daughter came up out of the city of David unto her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then did he build Milo. Now, uh, Chronicles, Second Chronicles <coughs> chapter 8 develops this a little bit more, and it lets us know that uh, she wasn't quite temple uh, area material. You know, you kind of get the idea that you can take the woman out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of the woman. If you get the idea here is that she just was a little bit too racy of a person to have that close to the temple. And so Solomon takes her out. And so three times in a year, verse 25, now we go from his workforce to his worship. Did Solomon offer burnt offerings and peace offerings upon the altar, which he built unto the Lord? And he burnt incense upon the altar that was before the Lord, so he finished the house. Now, this is an important note, not uh, just to let us know that he did this, but it's important to understand that he did this yearly, meaning that he continued to do this even once his backsliding began and he ultimately self-destructed, is that he never stopped going to church. He kept his obligations and the things that he wanted to do. The appearance of spirituality was maintained even when the heart turned away. And so it's a verse you'll want to remember as we get into uh, the later chapters in Solomon's life. And so uh, now we go from his work, worship to his warfare, verse 26. And it says, And King Solomon made a navy of ships in Ezion Geber, which is beside Eloth, or present-day Eloth. Now, if you were to look again at a modern-day map of Israel, you'll notice that the southernmost tip, the land kind of tapers like a V to a point. And that bottom point, the most southern point of Israel, touches the Red Sea. And that's Eloth. And so if you kind of go due south, all the way down to you touch the Red Sea, that's where this is, where Solomon made his navy. Uh, And Hiram, verse 27, sent in the navy his servants, shipmen that had knowledge of the sea with the servants of Solomon. And they came to Ophir and fetched from there gold, 420 talents, and brought it to King Solomon. So what you kind of get from this is that the navy that Solomon built was not so much for conflict as it was for commerce. He used it for exporting and importing. He would go to different places, India, uh, some places along the Ivory Coast of Africa. He would bring in delicacies, niceties, strangeties, gold, silver, spices, all the things that, uh, that, that he desired. He would have his navy go, and they would do business along uh, all those shorelines there. And so that was the purpose of his uh, navy. Now we come to chapter 10, and it says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, a retinue, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in uh, her heart. And so now we come to this section of scripture, which is quite common and quite famous, even referenced by Jesus concerning this queen of the south or the queen of Sheba that comes to him. 
It really is made up of five components. The first thing that we see here as we just are introduced to this woman is we find a seeking queen. And if you're taking notes, you could write that down. Sheba is either one of two places. It is either the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, which is modern-day Yemen. That's where most scholars believe this is. But there's also a group that think that perhaps this is a region of Ethiopia. And there's a tribe, a, a, a province in Ethiopia that swears that they are descendants of the Queen of Sheba even unto this day. Um, and and they, they also make other claims like they have the Ark of the Covenant. It's a very interesting thing to kind of look into. But, uh, you know, not for this particular Bible study. But, but all that to say is this, is that she came from a land about at least 1,200 miles from where Israel was. And that's a long journey. They didn't have um, Greyhound buses or Amtrak trains or, uh, you know, jetliners or anything. I mean, you had to ride on the back of a camel or on the donkey or in a chariot and some kind of thing. And now it says that this woman came and she came 1,200 miles at least from wherever she was with great pomp, spices, gold, precious stones because she heard about the name of Solomon, the fame of Solomon, and the wisdom of Solomon. Now, who is this woman? Outwardly, we know that she's a queen. She's a woman that has it all together. People look to her in her land. She's the one that calls the shots. Some, we know that she's wealthy. We know that she's powerful. We know that she's competent. We also know that she is curious. That there's something underneath all that people see on the outside that she desires to have satisfied. People look at her. Some people want to be her. But we discover that in secret, she has questions of her own. And she finds herself in a place where she has nowhere to take them. So people are relying on her. But she has struggles of herself and is having trouble making decisions for her own life. Some people want to be her. She's not even sure if she wants to be her. So she comes. She comes to Solomon, but she comes conflicted. We see on one hand, she has a desire to impress. She wants to bring her best. She wants to show what she is. And and she wants to do this in an attempt to hide what she isn't. And that is insecure. That there's something that she's trying to cover up. She wants to see who is this man. She still wants to be the queen on one hand as she comes to Solomon. But on the other hand, she kind of hopes to be humbled. She's heard that there's one that has answers to tough questions, who truly has the kind of wisdom and stability to know a life that has value and purpose. And she's in a place where she knows that regardless of what people see on the outside, that she needs help on the inside. On one hand, she's not really sure if she believes. At a point in her life where she knows that if she hasn't found the solution and the answers to the questions that she has yet, that she's probably not going to find it anywhere. And she's certainly probably not going to find it in Solomon. But on the other hand, if he really is who she hears that he is, and he can do what she's been told that he can do, then she's willing not just to come, but she in her heart secretly knows that she's willing to leave with Solomon all of the things that she's brought with her, all of the gold, all of the pomp. She'll give up all that she's got because secretly she's just that desperate. She needs to know. Now, at this point, I want to say this, is that Jesus brings up this story in Matthew chapter 12. It's only one verse. It's chapter 12, verse 42. And he does it as an indictment to an unbelieving group of religious leaders, those that were refusing and rejecting who he was. 
And Jesus said this to them. He said that the queen of the south will rise up in judgment against this generation because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And she heard him. She listened. She responded. It's implied. But you have rejected me a greater than Solomon who is here. And so Jesus brings this up into that thing as an indictment to them, but he shows that this story points to himself. He gives us the clue that there's more going on in the story for you and I applicationally than just the facts of what took place there. So what we have here is that behind this Queen of Sheba is a picture of the seeker, the one who seems to have it all together, that everyone thinks is secure and stable, but inwardly There's an aching search for something real, something of value. She comes to Solomon. What does she find? She's a seeking queen. She finds a splendid king. That's number two. Notice in verse three. It says that Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king, which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit within her. She comes to Solomon, not knowing what she's going to get, hoping to be impressed, and she gets way beyond what she could ever ask or think. It says that she both hears and sees. She, first of all, hears answers to all the questions that she had. It doesn't tell us what those questions were. Oh, how I wish that it did. That it told us what were the things that she was seeking to get answers to, hoping that Solomon would be able to address and that he actually is. I find it on purpose that God hides those questions from us. And here's why. Because I find that every heart, every human has questions deep inside their heart that they have a longing to have answered. And they might vary slightly from person to person. The kind of questions that there's no Wikipedia article that you can find an answer for. That there's no person that you can go to and get the kind of counsel you need that's going to satisfy what's really burning inside the desire to know what the answer is. What did she ask? Did she ask, where did we come from? Did she ask, what is a soul? How does it work? What does it look like? What is the invisible, intangible part of man? What are we? Humans, that is. I understand the politics. I'm a queen. I'm over a people. I understand how all of it works. I understand economy. I understand social structure. I understand poverty and wealth. I I understand a, a little bit of science and how it plays into the whole equation. But where's the sense of it and why? Why did God make me? Does God really know me? Is there a God? I'm here in Israel. We've heard about your God. The whole world knows about your God. Or am I just a coincidence? Is this all just, as the scientists say, an accident? What happens when I die? How can I know for sure? And so she comes to Selma. We don't know what the questions are, but I'm certain of one thing, that it's probably the same questions that at one point in our lives, or maybe even right now, every human being struggles with that we try to suppress and quiet with everything else that we cover it with. All of the pomp or the security or the image of everything else. And so she hears from Solomon that thing that she needs to hear to satisfy the answer that she's seeking. She not only hears it in his ear, but she also sees it with her eyes. As she looks at the way that his servants attend him, 
As she sees the, sitting of his, uh, the, the setting of his table and the food, the servants, the ministers, their apparel, the cupbearers, his ascent by which he comes to the house of the Lord, what she observes when she looks at his life is she sees that there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do life. She sees that his wisdom that he had affected the way that he lived. It affected what he ate. It affected the behavior of his servants. It affected the way that he dressed. And it affected his strength and his presence. There was something about him that when she would look at his life, she recognized that there's something he has that I've never seen anywhere else. There is an anchor in this man's life, a vision, and there's a direction, and it works. At this point, I want to say this to us. that You and I each are unique. There's no two of us that are the same. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. But at the same time, we have, all of us, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here, a common salvation. And because we have a common salvation, that means that God has a will for you, and this is God's will universally for every one of you. First of all, that you would have answers for those that come to you seeking to know a reason for the hope that you have. This woman came to a servant of the King of Kings because she had a need for answers in her life. Can people come to you and get the same kind of answers that Sheba got from Solomon. That's God's will for your life because he provides the answers that we need for those things. The deep and searching questions that everyone has are things that God has provided answers to you and I so that we can then give to others. But can you do that? Are you equipped to do it? The other thing is this, is that God desires for every one of us, his will is that we have lives that are ordered in such a way that those who hear what we say can look at the way we live and it removes every excuse for the way that they're living. That's what Sheba got when she looked at Solomon. She didn't just hear what she said, she watched his life. And when she watched his life, she saw that there was a stability that was so sound There was a strength in his presence. There was a behavioral model. There was something about him that was so stable that it gave credibility to the things that he said. At this point in Solomon's life, he's walking with God in a way that he's enjoying the fruit of that walk. And that's God's will for every one of us. His will for your life is not that everything should be falling apart. Yeah, we have seasons like that. And God uses those things as he's building and shaping and pruning and cutting. But his ultimate will for our lives is that people could look on at our lives and say, who is your God? Because I see something at work in your life that I want for myself that I know I don't have. And if we're not walking according to the ways of God, then when people look at our lives, even if we have the answers, then there's not going to be something in them that affects them. And that's what God wants for us. This encounter that she had, seeing what he did, hearing what he said, it ended with number three in your notes, a spiritual death. It's at the end of verse Five, it says that when she heard and saw these things, it says that there was no more spirit in her. Suddenly, everything that she thought was impressive about herself became really lame. The things that had been her boast upon her arriving in the king's presence were now her embarrassment. She pulled up in a chevette and she was parked next to Solomon's Escalade. She thought that things were, you know, glorious and beautiful, that she was bringing something of value to him. But what she found is, who am I in the presence of this greatness? The best that she could do couldn't hold a candle to what Solomon could do. And that moment when she saw and realized who she was in the presence of, and greater than that, the God that she was in the presence of, it says that she died spiritually. There was no more spirit in her. And that is always the first part of salvation. 
It's to realize that the best that I can do isn't good enough. See, when we compare ourselves with others, especially when we compare the image of ourselves that we put forth to others, it's real easy for us to think that we're something. But when we match that up against a God who sees right to the very nakedness of our soul and who in himself is the very expression of glory, it makes everything that we are wretched filth. That's the experience that Sheba experiences in the presence of Solomon here. And she realizes, I don't have enough. And so that leads to number four, a saving confession. Notice in verse six. And so she said to the king, it was a true report that I heard in my own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit, I believe not the words until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom And prosperity exceeds the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men. Happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. The first thing that she proclaims as she responds to all that she's seen and heard is this. It's all true. Everything that I heard when I came and saw it for myself, I'm finding that it's all true. And not only is it true, but even half the glory of it wasn't expressed to me. The rumors that I heard don't do justice to the things that I'm seeing. Now, how, how, how many times have you been able to say that in your life about things that you've heard and then seen? Seldom, right? The greatest car that's ever been made. You know, you'll never need another one. And then you go see it and the wheels fall off and, you know, okay, it's half as good as what I heard. You know, that's what normally happens. She comes expecting greatness and she's blown away to the point where she says, this super exceeds anything I've done. She says, it's all true. Then she looks around and the second word out of her mouth, she goes, the people here are actually happy. I've been serving in a kingdom. I've been a part of kingdom business my whole life, but I've never seen someone serving with joy. But I look at your servants, the way they sit. I see the way they serve. I see the way you ascend. I see that there's true and sincere joy here. It's not put on. It's not fake. It's not manufactured or plastic. But there's a real sincerity about the way the people are. They love each other. The happy are your servants, she says. I've never seen anything like this before. Makes me think of the rich young ruler. That young man who came to Jesus. It tells us that he had riches. It tells us that he had youth. And it tells us that he had power. He had the three things in life that people seek for the most. Riches, power, and youth. And yet he came to Jesus because he said, what must I do that I might have life? He had all the outward things, but he didn't have the inward thing. And she says, I see life here. And then the third thing that she said is, blessed be the Lord. And the Bible says that all those that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And she acknowledges the God of Israel. Now, again, Jesus references this story in Matthew chapter 12. And that reference, that one verse reference, Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, does three things for us. Just quick. Number one is that it, it, it proves to us that Solomon is a type here. That if Sheba coming to Solomon is like a seeker coming to Jesus, then that makes Solomon a type of Christ and Sheba, a type of the seeker in the story. Second of all, it tells us this, that Sheba is saved. Because what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He said, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment against this generation. Now, unbelievers and those that are being judged don't judge unbelievers. You understand? 
Jesus lets us know this woman got saved. Her experience with Solomon didn't just bring her to Solomon. It brought her to God. She gives her life to God. But third of all, what this story does and what Jesus affirming it does is that it makes those that refuse Christ as their Lord and Savior to be without excuse. And here's why. Because Jesus said if Sheba traveled 1,200 miles to come and hear Solomon, and she believed when she heard what she said, I've come to you and you haven't traveled at all, and yet you refuse to acknowledge and hear, even listen to what I'm saying to you, and it leaves you completely without excuse. See, we don't come seeking Jesus 1,200 miles. He came and sought us. He doesn't call us to climb an eternal stone staircase with bloody knees to try to find our way to him. He came into our world and dwelt among us and revealed who he is. And it leaves us without excuse. I believe that the whole world is filled with queens and kings of Sheba. People that have in their appearance that it's all together. Their lives outwardly are the picture of complete. They have an abundance of stuff. They have a career, perhaps a house, possessions, family, or health. Maybe they don't even have all those things, but they put forth like they do. But inside, they they, they, they live running from a darkness of unanswered questions. They bury it in the pomp of what everyone sees or a personality that they wear like a garment or an outward attractiveness or a lifestyle that hides the true hurt that's going on inside. What this story tells us is that there's an answer. There's an answer. And the answer is in the greater than Solomon. But just like Sheba, she said, I didn't believe it. I never believed that a king of Israel could be the answer to all of life. But when she came and saw, she realized that it was. And that's the answer I would give to you. You're here tonight and you say, how could you say that the answer to all of life is a king of Israel who lived 2,000 years ago and hung on a cross and died? The answer to that question, come and see. That's what Philip said to his brother Nathaniel when Nathaniel questioned the same. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, Philip said? Or Nathan said? Philip said, come and see. A few chapters later, John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at a Samaritan well. Samaritans didn't deal with Jews. She has a life-changing encounter. She comes to the king. It's beyond the glory that she could ever have expected. She runs back to her village and she says to the men, come and see a man that told me all that I ever did. You'll never know it until you come and see it for yourself. That's the answer. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 says, in him that is in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And his glory excels all that you will ever know. See, the what that Solomon knew and the what that Solomon had had nothing to do with the what. It had everything to do with the who. It was Jesus. He's the greater than Solomon. How did this result for the Queen of Sheba? Number five in your notes, finally, a soul saturation. It says, and she gave the king 120 talents of gold and of spices, very great store. And precious stones, there came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Notice, first of all, that she was willing to lay everything she had at his feet. All of the riches, all of the pomp, all that defined who she was, she laid it at his feet. She lost her identity there. 
And the navy, this is parenthetical, but it says the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir, great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almug trees, nor were seen unto this day. And then verse 13, and King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, besides that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and all her servants. It says that he fulfilled all her desire and he gave of his royal bounty. Now there are traditions and stories that indicate that what this means is that she didn't just leave with stuff, but she left also with seed. In other words, Solomon, before she left, she left with a son of Solomon in her womb. Now, you can look it up in the language. If you look up the word bounty, uh, the word is translated hand almost every time. Here, um, it, it is uh, translated, oh goodness, did I write it down? Look it up. I didn't. <laughs> that one slipped through the cracks, you know. Um, but but, but the, the meaning of it is absolutely unique in uh, this thing. But the other ways it's translated are fellowship or consecration. He gave to her something of himself is how you can read that. And you can look at it as the story, some, some extra biblical historians would say, or you could just look at it uh, in less than those terms. It, it's kind of up to you uh, it, to realize it. But here's the point in the application and why it's important. Is that when a person comes to Christ... They don't just get religion or knowledge about someone or knowledge from someone. You get God. That's what you get. Not God with you, not God in your list of things that now you know about, but you get God at one with you. He gives himself, his royal bounty, he gives it to you. See, what happens is that the thing that's made, that's you, conjoins with the one who made it, that's God, And now life makes sense. Recently, and I'm closing, don't worry, we're not going to take even one more verse tonight. We are done with our Bible study, so we're we're wrapping it up. We'll pick up there. And that's planned, believe it or not. We got as far as we needed to get, you know. A few weeks ago, uh, I, I got to drive a really fast car, the fastest car that I've ever driven. You know, I don't own it. I got to drive it. It's kind of one of those pastoral perks. You, you know, you meet a lot of people, you get to do some fun things sometimes. That was fun. Okay. Now, this car so fast, okay, that first gear, five, you know, five speed, first gear, you take off. Second gear, I started to get vertigo. Okay, you know that feeling like we don't really know where you are. You don't feel right. And I said to the the owner of the car, I said, what is that? And he goes, oh, your back tires are uh, fishtailing back and forth as you're going along at this point. It was on Vassar Road, by the way. Um, (laughs) 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 Confession of sin, you confess your fault. No, no, but let me let me say this. All right. Just so that, you know, you don't have to say pastor. Listen, I didn't go more than 50 miles an hour. I just got up to 50 miles an hour very quickly. Okay, and then I came back down and I said, well, okay, I get it. This is humbling. But here's the point why I bring that up, not just to boast I got to drive a really cool car. That car makes no sense without the key. I mean, you could look at it, you could go through it, and you could say this thing is designed, this thing is engineered, you could, it is beautiful, this is obviously, it serves a purpose. But if you don't have the key, you will never discover what the purpose of that machine is. You could use it as a table, 
you can use it as a workbench and you could put things on it. You could as a, use it as a showpiece and put it in a shop and, and do all of that, but you will never know the potential of what that thing is designed for and what it can do until you put the key in. And so is a human life. You are absolutely engineered to be something beyond anything that this world can ever produce. And you don't even know what that is. And it isn't until the key of life, which is Jesus Christ, is placed in the heart of that life that it can ever begin to realize what it is. The thing that is made must be conjoined with the thing that made it. And that is what happens when a person comes to the greater than Solomon. You're not getting religion. You are getting God. And you will never know your value in Christ until Christ is seated upon the throne of your life. Well, I began tonight's study with Newton's third law, the law that every action has a greater or equal reaction. Now, that law only applies to this world. A lot of laws only apply to this world. Gravity only applies to this world. If you leave this world, that law no longer applies, the law of gravity. If uh, if you leave this world, what goes up stays up. But if you're in this world, what goes up comes down. Listen, that's true spiritually as well. If you live your life out of this world, when God elevates you, you will go up and you'll continue to elevate. But if you're living your life for this world, you'll go up, but you're going to come back down. And what we're going to see is that Solomon is living his life not for heaven, but for earth. And he's at the apex. He's gone up. But in our study next time, we're going to see that Solomon most certainly is going to come down. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for the things that we have uh, heard tonight. We learned, Lord, tonight of your intimate involvement within our lives. That you're into everything, Lord. You're into the halfway prayers that we meditate upon in our hearts as we're waking from our sleep. You're in those questions that we have, those aching fears and anxieties that plague us, Lord, prior to our knowing you. And yet you're in all of that. And Father, I'm tonight personally challenged also by what the Queen of Sheba saw in Solomon. And I would pray, Lord, for each of us that our lives might be a reflection of you for those that are looking at us, seeking answers that can only come from you. And Lord, I know that there's some that are here right now and they've come tonight like that seeking queen. And as they've heard this message tonight, there's something that's happening inside their heart. Lord, flashes of truth, flashes of life, that have come to them. And Lord, I would ask that even now, Lord, you would knock and that they would hear that their hearts would be open to you. We thank you, Lord, for this time. And we so need you to be in our lives, Lord. And we would ask that you'd continue to make us into your image. Before I say amen, the Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that is both outwardly and inwardly, not just your physical appearance. But your inward things, the way that you think, the way that you're wired, the way that you move, all of that is made by God. He made you. But that will never make sense to you, and it will never bear any fruit in the world until you come to the Savior. And the Bible says that God has set it in every heart to seek after Him. That there's something in us that draws us to want to know the answers, to see value and meaning. People look at things without For those answers, they look at things within. They'll look for a guru. They'll look for a teacher. They'll look for a mindset, a personality, something to inspire. That was my life. 
prior to coming to Christ, trying to find something that would make sense of life. And honestly, I would have taken anything as long as it wasn't Jesus Christ. And the only reason is because I knew it would challenge my lifestyle. But what I found, and there's many here that can testify the same thing, is that he is the only one that connects all of the colors and lines of life. He made it, and only he can make sense of it. And that's why if you're here and you don't know Christ, but you know people that are, that's why they seem so, so sure and so serious about the things that they say. That's why they're so adamant as they plead with you and say, you've got to know Jesus Christ because there's something that happens that you know that it's real. And there's a reason why you don't see what they see. It's because you can't. The Bible says that you're spiritually blind until you open your heart and then you invite Jesus into his place within you. Your spiritual eyes are unopened and you continue to grasp in the dark. On the cross, Jesus removed every obstacle and every restriction. He is yours for the taking and he offers his life to you as he laid it down for the world. But he won't force you. And for everyone that comes to him, it comes as an interruption for their life. At first, it's inconvenient, perhaps. But it's always met with gladness. And just like the Queen of Sheba, she says, the half wasn't told me. And so it's true for everyone that comes to Christ. You come to a realization in your life that not even half of what he is has told me. But the choice is yours. He's not going to force himself on you. And you can go on year after year. You can reject. You can skeptically push him away and ignore that knocking in your heart. But in the end, you'll find, just like Sheba prior to coming, that gnawing of the heart, you'll never find the answer. You'll never find the thing that you're looking for. Jesus gives substance and worth. And he invites you to make an eternal allegiance with him through his blood sacrifice. It's a relationship that's based on love. It's not religion. It's not church. It's not doing things or Bible reading or works and prayers. That's not what it's about. It's about you having Jesus Christ alive in your life, conjoined with the God who made you. And he knocks. And for some, I believe here, he's knocking right now. He's calling you. He's saying, let me inside. I want to give you life. In just a moment, the musicians are going to play. It's your chance to put faith and feet together. If you want to receive Jesus Christ tonight, when these guys begin to worship, it's your chance to give your life, to respond to that knocking and say, Jesus, I want to know you. And here's how you do it. You get up out of your seat, come to whatever aisle you're closest to. Make your way right up here to the front. When everybody's gathered here in the front, you want to receive Christ, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. It's going to be my words, but it'll be your heart, your prayer. You'll communicate it to God. It'll go something like this. God, I open my heart to you, and I want you to be the Lord of my life. And I believe that you're knocking and you've been knocking and now I don't want to run away from you anymore but I want you to come in and I want to follow you all the days of my life. And the Bible says that when you pray that prayer, God hears, he answers, he will come into your heart and your life will be changed forever. Your name will be written in heaven and the sea of your sins will be washed away forever. It's the promise that he gives. I know it's Wednesday night. I know it's late. I know that many of you here, you're here, you come every week, you're saved. I know that. But I know that there's some people here that you came here tonight and you know you don't know God. But you came here tonight because you want answers. Why else did you come? Think about it. There's a battle. 
It's the mind, it's the will, it's the emotions. There's forces of light and darkness at work right now, but we've prayed for you. There's many praying for you right now, and this is your chance. I've said enough. Musicians are going to play. That's you. You need Jesus Christ. Please come. Don't delay. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. He says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father and the angels of heaven. He loves you. This is your chance to receive that love. Come.